0: School just got out, so hopefully as an educator you're taking time to relax. But we all know that most teachers don't shut their minds off completely in the summer. You're probably already thinking about the year ahead. One thing you might be thinking about is how to better serve your ELLs. English language learners continue to be a growing population in US schools. In fact, Nearly five million students in public schools are English language learners. Here at Teaching Channel, we know how important it is to provide teachers with strategies, tools, tips, geared specifically toward teaching ELLs, which is why we designed our curated collection of resources, the ELL Deep Dive. I had the great pleasure of putting this collection together with the help of an amazing educator and consultant, Sarah Otto of Confianza, and she is here with me today. I'm Gretchen Vierstra, and I'm your host this week for Teach Talks, a podcast from your friends and colleagues at Teaching Channel. In this episode, I'm so excited to talk with Sarah, who not only collaborated with Teach on an ELL filming project and the Deep Dive, but also led our group of teacher leaders, the Fab Five Squad. Sarah is joined by one of the squadsters, Nicole Shimizu. They're both here with me today to share their list of five things you can do this summer to prepare for teaching your ELLs in the fall. I'm so excited to hear what they have to say. Welcome, Sarah and Nicole. Before we get started, how about each of you talk a little bit about your background? Nicole, would you like to start?
1: Sure. Um, I started my career as a full day kindergarten teacher with a class of 29. students. And of those 29, only four were monolingual native English speakers. And for 13 of those students, my classroom was their very first experience with English. And I I realized how ill prepared I was to teach in such a linguistically diverse classroom. So that same year, I started coursework for my ELL endorsement. And shortly after finishing that endorsement, I moved into working with emergent bilinguals full time. And today, my work is centered around supporting teachers, like my first year teacher self, who felt, who feel unprepared to teach in linguistically diverse classrooms. So I'm so excited to be here today.
0: Thank you so much, Nicole. And Sarah, you wanna say a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having us, Gretchen.
2: So, like Nicole, I started out as a general education teacher myself, and was um, in a classroom of a lot of students in the Milwaukee Public Schools, uh, many of which were many of whom were English language learners as well. And I had not received much training on serving them and having equitable outcomes. I just really, like Nicole, felt really unprepared myself, and my career uh, ended up taking me to Puerto Rico to teach and put myself in my students' shoes so that I could see what it was like, even though, for my experience, I wasn't a voluntary language learner, (laughs) like so many of our students are. But I've always tried to really empathize with where they're coming from. And most currently, I've been uh, working out of New England. I started my own consulting company, as you said, a couple years ago, Confianza. And I'm so excited to work with my team and contributors, like, Nicole, who's done some amazing writing for us um, and other Yale folks around the country and the world and really helping, again, like like Nicole said, teachers like us, teachers that were there and didn't know what to do um, and how to bridge that gap in terms of language and in terms of culture.
0: That's great. And, you know, I'm so thankful both of you are here today. I'm so excited that you were willing to talk with us because we at Teaching Channel, like I said, are really trying to get the resources out there. So thanks so much, Um, and as I said earlier, the theme of today is five things you could do over the summer to prepare for the fall to reach and teach your ELLs, and um, Sarah and Nicole put a list together, and I'm going to have them walk through the list, and I might ask a few questions, but really it's going to be Sarah and Nicole sharing their wisdom with us. So do you want to start us off, Sarah? Sure, I'd love to.
2: So the first thing that came to mind is getting to know our students and particularly their stories. I know we have a lot of pressure to cover, cover, cover curriculum, teach the standards, uh, move really quickly through our learning. And that is important, but we don't get very far unless we actually know who our students are that are in front of us. And, um, you know, that can just take a lot of different shapes in terms of how we do that. A lot of teachers say, oh, I have 30 students, or I have 125 students. I don't have time to learn everybody's stories. But if there's a couple English learners that um, are coming to you, we recommend, I recommend just taking a little extra time, like maybe having lunch with that child, or sitting down and doing a little um, questionnaire to learn about their interests. And uh, whether they're born in the U.S. or they're coming to you as a newcomer from another country, it's really important to honor where they're coming from and just get to know them at that human level. What do you think, Nicole?
1: Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, another thing that I did was once I knew more about my kids' stories, I'd try to spend time in and explore their communities um, and get to get to know what it's like to live in the community that they're they're raise, they're being raised in, um, learning more about their culture, learning about more of what family structure looks like, um, how they engage outside of the classroom. So, um, dialogue journals were a great way for me to kind of um, sort of have written exchanges with with kids, and I realized that kids um, were more willing to share sometimes in a written journal versus maybe in a face-to-face conversation. So it was a little bit maybe less intimidating to, to write down a few ideas um, in a journal. So that's another great way to kind of expose your students' stories or welcome them into your classroom.
2: Well, that's a really good idea. I like the, I, the possibility of having kids write or draw instead of just speaking, because we know a lot of English learners can feel self-conscious, especially as they're beginning that oral language process, or even if they're uh, transitioning, you know, there's a lot of maybe fear of speaking. So that's really cool. Um, it's making me think of a thing I did with the student early on um, in my career where well, I had them take home um, cameras. This was before we had smartphones, so I'm dating myself, but, uh, <laughs> you know, take home digital, cam- uh, uh, disposable cameras rather, and, and record their communities, you know, and do little books, like creating books about their stories and their identities. Such a great idea.
0: Oh, I love that idea. And that's something that a teacher, obviously all these things we're going to be talking about work for lots of students, right? But that's just a great beginning of the year strategy for any teacher out there.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think the arts can be really powerful and like Nicole was saying, multi being creative and making sure that we realize that the, la- the language, the written or oral, doesn't have to be the only way, mm-hmm. providing options for kids is really important. Yeah.
0: Love it. All right, what's your idea number two? So Nicole
2: and I were talking, thinking about it, and we think to build on idea number one about getting to know students' stories and communities, we think going a little deeper and getting to know their languages and their cultures. Um, I always made a fool of myself in learning how to say good morning in the 7 or 10 or 12 languages of my classroom, and my kids loved it because they could see that Ms. Otto was willing to try, and that's what they're doing every day, trying new words, trying new languages. Um, you know, trying things that are uncomfortable. And it also shows them that you really value their bilingualism, right? And that, as I like to say, language isn't really separate from culture. So if you can just acknowledge the language, it can go
1: pretty far. And I'm
2: curious what you think about that, Nicole, because I know you really believe in that too.
1: Oh, yeah. I loved um, searching for books written in the languages that my students spoke. And um, I loved when kids... Who didn't speak that particular language would sort of peruse through, through those books as well. I think it was, it, it just kind of generated this general sense of curiosity about language in the classroom. So, no matter what I was doing, if it was a calendar or whatever a discussion or r- classroom routines, I try to invite as many languages in as possible. And like Sarah said, the kids really love when you mispronounce things in their language
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. you know it's making me think too nicole i was just working with the school on this the other day that if, if they've got this linguistically diverse student body why mm-hmm. not at this at the classroom level and also at the school level have like welcome in different languages have countries flags you know have at least some of the basic representation right of different languages
1: and cultures around yeah. the classroom and around the school mm-hmm. yep and I think the other thing it does is gets it gets kids to think about um, cognates, and so looking at similarities amongst languages and um, thinking about language origins. So they get really curious about how language works as well. So
2: that is such a great point, especially because our non-English learners um, may not have that same language lens that ELs have, and they can benefit from that. Like understanding, like you said. Parts of words, prefixes, suffixes, word study, that's that's a great skill for all kids. So if we can bring that and help develop not just that metalinguistic piece for all kids, but I'm also thinking like that global competency piece, you know, sort of appreciating other languages is just as yeah. important too. So. Yeah.
0: yeah. And you know, that reminds me, Sarah, of a video that we shot with you in Wisconsin. Um that bilingual classroom where the students were looking at cognates. And I'll definitely put a link to that um, with this podcast, because that's a great example of exactly what you're talking about. Kids really diving into just what makes up languages. Oh yeah. With Marisa on my team, that she'd,
2: she'd love to um, have teachers check that out because even if you don't have a full dual language program, like Nicole and I are saying, there are things that you can do to bridge one language to another and help kids internalize that yep. as they more words and phrases.
0: That's great. Great. All right. Um, what's your tip number three? Well, you know, we always we obviously have to have students access the content. That's what we
2: got to get down to business here with teaching. And so, with that, the whole idea of what differentiation is comes to mind. And sometimes differentiation seems like this big mysterious set of skills when when really it starts with what we've said knowing our students and secondly it's how are we supporting them so they can understand what it is we're teaching so i like to talk about that and like just providing supports and there's no one size fits all what do you think nicole
1: well i was thinking about um i just recently come back from japan and while my parents were both japanese speakers unfortunately i didn't um learn to speak Japanese very well. Um, In fact, my friend who I visited said, wow, you talk like a (laughs) three-year-old.
0: So
1: (laughs) 3 year olds level of Japanese. But um, spending time in that situation where I was not a speaker of the language helped me kind of think about what was supportive. So maybe spending some time this summer in situations where you might be the only speaker of English and then you can take some time to reflect on, you know, you know, what was helpful for you Was the picture supports helpful, um, some of the gesturing that you're using to try and communicate with others, like what, what types of things are really helpful, helpful for you as a learner? And then how can that translate into the classroom?
2: Oh, I love that idea. You know, as I said earlier, just putting yourself in student's shoes, it's such a critical piece that not every teacher has had that experience. So why not use the summer to do that? Yes. And I love what you said, too, Nicole, about, like, if you're finding that visuals are helpful, <laughs> visuals are really helpful. Well, that's one great support. Then why not spend some time over the summer adding some visuals mm-hmm. to your units, finding some real-life pictures and, and clip art and things like that? It's great.
0: I yeah. love I love that idea of putting yourself in their shoes by putting yourself in an uncomfortable, perhaps uncomfortable situation, right? Where you're the only one not speaking the language of everyone else. And I imagine, yes, it's great to be able to travel right outside of the U.S. to try that out. But I'm sure there's places just here, right? You could yeah. go to a restaurant that happens to be frequented by, you know, lots of people speaking this particular language and go in and, and see how you do, you know? <laughs> you can find those kinds of opportunities just here in the U.S. as well.
2: Absolutely. Definitely, and I know that Nicole and I—we've talked about this a lot. You know that it's good to be uncomfortable, right? It's—it's it's, that's the, where the learning is, mm-hmm. and it's—it's it's where when we're comfortable that we're not making those gains. So again, putting ourselves in our students' shoes and being really strategic about that—it um, seems like you know there could be opportunities, like you said, right in your neighborhood, to do that in different cultural and linguistic pockets that Mm -hmm. you can have in the city
1: or nearby areas. So why not? Yeah. Great idea. Uh, The summer is in farmer's markets. So there's often um, farmers who bring their goods in, who might not be native English speakers. So it's a great place um, to kind of explore that too. Great idea.
0: Love it. Um, Okay. Let's see. What's your fourth thing on the list? Yeah, so this goes back to what we were talking
2: before. With number 2 is bringing students' languages and cultures into the classroom and I and I want to really reiterate that even when you're teaching, not just when you're getting to know students and their stories and and you know, perhaps having welcome flags and different instructional or um, you know, different different classroom culture pieces in different languages. It's also an instructional tool. It's mm-hmm. it's okay for students to use their first language to clarify um, to perhaps learn new content, um, as Nicole was saying earlier, having dialogue journals. Why not have students write in their in their heritage language in their heritage language if if they want to? You know, for example, in an assignment, um, there's a lot that schools have around um, programs for that. Where I'm in Massachusetts, there's a history of anti bilingual education and. There's a lot of debates up here and, and other places where I've worked about is it okay to do that? And it doesn't mean that we're teaching in that language. It just means that we're using it as a way, as a support. We're using it as a way for students to access uh, how we're teaching and then also to demonstrate what they know. So I, I know that's a big topic and it's a hot topic. And, mm-hmm. and people have a lot of um, a lot of perspectives about that. But I think that um, as a content teacher, especially if you've been a little nervous maybe about having students use their first language, it might be helpful to have a conversation over the summer or as school starts with your English learner specialist to really get clear tips on how he or she does that and how and what um you know what the school approach might be for that. So that again, not we're just not honoring the languages, but we're using it
1: strategically and intentionally to help learn content. Yeah. I, you know, I've also found that having kids write in their heritage language sort of gives me um, a quick assessment of their literacy level in their heritage language. and I don't even need to really s- to be able to read in that particular language, but their handwriting, um, their phrasing um Are they writing in single words? Are they drawing pictures and labeling? Or are they writing in complete paragraphs? Um, So even if they're writing in um, a language I'm not completely familiar with, I can get a good grasp of their general literacy level just by looking at a piece of writing in their heritage language. That's such a great idea, Nicole. And when you
2: support teachers, do you promote that as well with them?
1: Absolutely, and I I remind them that it, it can feel often very uncomfortable when kids are uh, using primary language in the in the classroom and you might not know what they're saying. Um, mm-hmm. But I remind them that, you know, it's okay to let go a little bit. And even if there is a little bit of discussion about what's for lunch or what they're going to do at the playground mixed in with whatever the content area discussion is, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. They're getting an opportunity to connect with their friends and it's probably what our English speakers are doing as well.
0: True. Um, True. They're talking about lunch and recess as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and Nicole, um, I think you also had a suggestion of maybe learning a few keywords or phrases from the languages.
1: Yeah. Like Sarah was saying earlier, I love learning a few words or key phrases in the languages that my students speak. And like we were saying earlier, it's great when you make pronunciation errors because you're showing kids that it's okay to make language errors. And, um, It's just part of the learning process. And it sort of changes the culture in your classroom, um, where sometimes if kids make English errors, you'll hear lots of giggles. If um, you start to model that language errors are okay, and that everyone can practice speaking a language other than English, um, it, it sort of changes the culture in the classroom a little bit.
0: Yep. Great. All right. So this brings us to your fifth idea for teachers.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Nicola and I are right on the same page, and we touched on this earlier. Is collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. If you're a content teacher, find out who your language specialist is and reach out to him or her. And if you're an EL specialist, collaborate with content teachers. You know, we're all working on some of the same dilemmas, whether we're coming through our our language lens or our content lens. And there's so much that we can do together to help our students, particularly when we're working with the same kids. I think sometimes, at least in my experience, and I see it in schools all the time still, is Some kids might have six, seven, eight different teachers, but they don't talk to each other. So the students going from teacher to teacher to teacher and teachers are using different language, but maybe talking about the same thing, Uh, or different tools when they really could be aligning more and and helping kids um, take less of a cognitive leap, you know, between class or between teachers or between texts and topics. It's, It's so helpful for students when they see us united and when we try to connect the dots for them because they're going through so much as it is already. We want to try to make it uh, as easy as we can for them. And then just plus the the value of collaborating with each
1: other is something that I never get tired of. How about you, Nicole? Absolutely. I, you know, H- Honingsfeld and Dove have created some great um, books, co-teaching for English learners, or collaboration and co-teaching for English language learners are both great resources. And they use this great analogy of, teachers and ELL specialists riding a tandem bike together. Hmm. And I love that analogy because we're all going to the same place. Um, but really, you know, using each other's strengths and partnering to help kids reach greater depths in terms of their language and content understanding.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, these ideas are fabulous, you guys. And- This makes me think of one thing, though, actually, as I was listening, because these are all wonderful ideas. I'm thinking of the teacher who, this used to happen to me a lot when I was in the classroom. I would literally get my list of students like a day before teaching rather than maybe a week or who knows when. Maybe some schools give them out early, but oftentimes in my school, they were shuffling students and making class lists up until the very last minute. So I know this isn't a question we had thought about earlier, but I'm wondering now if a teacher's handed a list and they've got one night to think about this list of students, do you have any ideas for what they can do if they know that on that list are students who are not, um, who are ELs, who are going to be learning the language this year?
2: Such a great question. It's like, unfortunately, we can't always be more proactive. You're right, which is kind of given the data, given the students, and we have to do the best we can with it. I mean, offhand, I, I want to hear Nicole's thoughts, but I'll just offer one little thing that I'm thinking of, which is just find out their language levels if you can. Like, are they a beginner? Are they intermediate? Are they advanced? Like, just getting a sense of that, as well as their home language. If a lot of those things are on the data system that a school has, hopefully. <laughs> and if they're not, I would inquire why they're not, because. That's really an equity issue, right? Every teacher should know sort of what are the language levels and what are the language backgrounds, just to start. And, and that's not everything, but that's a
1: starting point, I would say. Totally agree with that. And also, um, I'm not a huge proponent of using translation tools for instruction in the classroom, but I think it's a great tool for um, developing interpersonal connections with your kids. So if you do figure out which languages um, your kids speak, Google Translate or other translation devices are a great way of just learning a f- those few keywords, just "hello" or "welcome," um, anything to help them feel more comfortable and um, a part of the classroom.
0: Great, great suggestions. Thank you. Um, and sorry for throwing you a last question that wasn't on our list.
2: <laughs> no, good one, Gretchen. <laughs>
0: um, so I wanted to end our conversation today with book suggestions, because over the summer, we often read, right? Hopefully we have a little bit of pool or beach time or lake time or even just backyard time to open up a book. And I know teachers, teachers, yes, will probably read fun fiction over the summer, but they also probably will read books that will help them in their teaching in the year ahead. So what's your recommendation for books educators could read now or read a little later or in the near future? Great, Nicole, do you want to start?
1: Sure. Um, so I have an 11 year old and an 8 year old, and my son and daughter and I are planning to read through um, this book list that we found. Um, and I believe Gretchen's got is going to share the link with you all later. Um, but it's about it's a book list of authors of color um, writing for kids. So it features these books feature protagonists of color um, that that are really outside of that stereotypical role. So uh, Sarah and I were talking about this the other day. Um, I've tried to find, so my kids are Japanese and Vietnamese, and I've tried to find books for them with protagonists who are Japanese and Vietnamese. And it's interesting to see that many times the books sort of, if if they're about Japanese, they're set in the Japanese internment camps. Or if they are Vietnamese, it's about um, a Vietnamese child during the Vietnam War. And what I've been looking for are, protagonists of color just experiencing life and uh, an opportunity for my kids to see themselves in books. And I know Sarah and I often have conversations about um, windows and mirrors. And so these books, I think, can give that opportunity for um, your students of color to see themselves in literature, but then also provide windows for your students um, to see, to to kind of step into other cultures and experience them as well.
0: Wow. I can't wait to look at this list. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Nicole's a wealth.
2: I love learning from Nicole. I can't share anything that cool because I'm, I'm like knee deep, I guess up to my ears is probably a better metaphor in writing a book. So I've been really focused on that. And um, I'm proud to say that it's going to complement the teaching channel course that we're just about to launch, which is called Reaching and Teaching. English learners, and the book that I'm working on is called The Language Lens. That's the title we're working on right now, and it's really all about helping content teachers doing just what we're talking about, helping them learn how to get to know their students, how to bring in that equity, culturally responsive mindset, and then um, you know how to plan and teach and assess. It sounds so easy, but it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I'm, you know, I've been really excited to work on this guide that is short but sweet and hopefully powerful tips. Like we're talking about today, that any teacher can use uh, to support their English learners, and so that should be coming out uh, later on this year, right after school gets out, or shortly thereafter in the fall. And so I just want to say that you know I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here and to talk with Nicole and and to share with other teachers because I really empathize with you. You know, it's, it's not easy. I'm in classrooms every almost every day and. It doesn't get any easier, but what I try to do is just help, you know, in any way that I can. So that's what I'm up to. In short,
0: that's awesome. I can't wait to check that out. And this list, I'm going to check that out too. i Nicole. I'm going to. My kids are 11 and 9, so. I think I'm on this list too this summer. This sounds so fun. <laughs> uh, we'll
1: have book talks later.
0: <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I'm so excited. Um, this has been really useful and I think that the both of you have shared really practical tips that you know we could either work on over the summer or at the beginning of the school year, and even if teachers don't find the time over the summer. A lot of the things that you talked about can happen as all of their back to school planning. And so this has been a really great conversation. And I thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been so much fun to have this conversation with you guys. Yeah.
2: Thanks so much, Gretchen. Thanks, Nicole.
0: Yes. And, um, What we'll do is we'll have links to the things that Nicole and Sarah have mentioned with our podcast. Um, I'll also add some links to some other things that came up throughout, such as links to some videos that we did um, with the help of Sarah and her colleagues that might be useful for you to check out. And we really just hope that this is a great resource for you to use as you head back to school in the fall. So thanks for joining us at Teach Talks, and we hope to have you join us again. Thanks so much.